Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, if you've listened in before to some of our previous episodes, you know I had a book that was going to come out called Troubleshooting Your Novel, and uh, it's especially good for novelists, uh, screenwriters, um, playwrights, and uh, the book is now available through Writer's Digest Books or anywhere online. So if you are a storyteller, story writer, novelist, you want to check that out. Um, it's kind of the collection of about a dozen years of trying to teach people writing and storytelling and trying to make it as insanely practical as possible. So I hope you'll check that out. And today I have uh, a great guest who is a friend of mine. I've known him for a number of years, um, and he's a really fascinating artist. Uh, this is the first time I've interviewed a singer-songwriter, and uh, but I've been so impressed with his music, his creativity, storytelling ability, and, and just really a heart of compassion that I figured I needed to have him on. Uh, John Thomas Oakes is a recording artist. He's a songwriter, author, composer, producer, and story spinner. His album, Blue York, has been described as a great blend of bluegrass with a very hip twist. John Thomas Oakes is a master with words. You have to really pay attention because his writing style is from a real thinker's point of view. Um, And I crossed paths with JT many years ago, and it's been exciting to see him continue to produce his stories and his songs, both in New York City and now in Tennessee, where he lives. And so, JT, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. Yeah. um, First of all, uh, your mom, I had spoken with your mom at one point, and she said some people call you John Boy. So... Oh, no. Oh, the mom strikes again. Yeah, and so I basically said, all right, next time I speak to him, I'm going to call him John Boy. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's pretty funny. That started Um, with the Waltons, you know. (laughs) Um, So, okay, so let's talk about your music for a sec. Some people have called it blues or folk, bluegrass, Americana. How do you describe your style of music uh, to to people? Uh, I, I tried to distill it down to one word one time because I, I was reading all these blogs about how you should pitch your music. and um, So I, I distilled it down to city grass, oh, uh, nice. which to me, me kind of combines the sensibility of, of city life with, uh, with the roots of growing up in the country, which happened to me. And, uh, you know, after living in the city, I realized that the stories you get in cities are completely different from the stories you get in the country. And so I guess my writing kind of reflects both styles of li- of life. Um, and so that's kind of the word I use to describe it if somebody tries to pin me down. I like that, yeah. Um, I... Uh... I was just thinking about this idea of the stories that we encounter are different in cities in the country. And and I think some of your albums have basically kind of like the one was based um, in New York, in New York City. And then didn't you do one based in Las Vegas, maybe Vegas Blues or something? The second one was called Vegas Blue. And there's a, a two or three songs about Vegas on there, but it moves around a little bit more. They're all city themes, but yeah. they don't stay in one city like Blue York did. Blue York is pretty much all about living in New York. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, that's yeah. pretty cool. So, so city grass. 
Yeah, I got the idea for it actually at um, one night I was at the Bottom Line, which is a nightclub in New York in the Village, and Patty Loveless was singing, and she had just done her bluegrass album. Uh, the can't think of the name of it now, the title of her album, but she did a bluegrass album several years ago. And she was doing a, an old song called You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive. Yeah, I know that song. Yeah. yeah, the chorus goes, where the sun comes up about 10 in the morning and the sun goes down about 3 in the day. And it talks about never leaving Harlan alive. And she was singing about Harlan, Kentucky. Well, I was in New York, so I thought it's the first time I'd ever heard the song. And I thought, oh, she's got a bluegrass song about Harlem. Oh, right, that's, right. It's so weird. Why would a bluegrass singer uh, sing a song about Harlem, New York? That doesn't make sense. And I thought, well, why not? Um, nobody ever writes bluegrass songs about city life. It's always about the country. So that's where that came from. Now, um, what what's on your plate right now? What's on your plate these days? I know you're a creative guy. You always have a dozen different projects <laughs> popping. You want the whole list or just the top ten? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe oh, what, <laughs> what's the um, what's kind of uh, the the project right now that you're most excited about looking at? Um, I have I have a musical that I'm trying to get written uh, finished this month because there's a big contest uh, that I have to apply for on the first of November. So I'm trying to finish it up so I can actually submit it to the contest. I don't know if you've heard of the Richard Rogers Award. Hmm, I don't know. Um, it, it's put out by the American Academy of Arts and Letters in New York, which is a, a, it's kind of an educational institution that's trying to keep theater alive, and uh-huh. it, it has a they they try to develop deep respect for the history of musical theater and keep all that stuff alive. Well, they give out a big grant every year to a new a new writer who's never been on Broadway, a musical theater writer, and I've been submitting to that for years. And, um, you know, I always get the form letter, thanks for submitting. Uh, we've never, <laughs> yeah, but we've never, we've never won it. And so I'm going to submit again this year. And we have, we, we my, when I say we, I mean my dad, Tommy, and I, we wrote a musical uh, about Robin Hood. And it's called Point of an Arrow, String of a Bow. And so we've got the script and the lyrics all done, and I'm just trying to finish up the music right now. Nice. So that's gonna that's gonna keep me hopping uh, through October, so I can meet that deadline. That's actually a good transition because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was um, taking old stories and retelling them in new ways and contemporary ways. Um, mm-hmm. I know you've done historical stories, you've done biblical narratives, um, and uh, for example, in this one about Robin Hood, what uh, kind of um, how do you how do you do that? Either how do you choose where to look? Um, and then also when you're taking a story that people are familiar with and they kind of already know either the characters or where it goes, how do you slant it so that it's intriguing to them when they hear, hear it told in a fresh way? I think with, uh, the first part of your question about where, do, where do we, the story ideas come from? We don't actually do a whole lot of searching around because I, I feel like the world is just saturated with great stories. And so the source material just seems to kind of come to us. Um, every now and then, Dad and I will look at each other and be like, oh, my gosh, that needs to be a musical. You know, it's not like we sit, spend a whole lot of time digging. 
it's if you just open up and let it in, there's story everywhere. And when it comes to the famous stories, we really like public domain stories because we don't have to pay royalties. <laughs> right. So uh, Robin Hood is great for that. Um, it's been around for so long. Um, so what, what we do with a thing like Robin Hood is, first of all, we bounced around the idea, well, should we update it? Should we modernize it? And we thought, no, that's already been done. I mean, Frank Sinatra and Steve and um, Dean Martin and the Rat Pack did that with Robin and the Seven Hoods back in the 50s. So I don't really know that Robin Hood needs to be updated and modernized again. But it's such a well-loved story that we decided to keep it in the period and take all the familiar characters and the familiar settings and just write our own uh, plot. And so we basically took a day in the life of Robin Hood, and we crammed all the characters that you know, like Will Scarlet and Little John and Friar Tuck and Maid Marian, and we put them all into this story with, of course, the Sheriff of Nottingham. And it's basically one day in the life of Robin Hood, and we've built a, a two-act story about and, you know, several events that might have happened to the Merry Men and uh, tried to keep it in the spirit of all the great versions of Robin Hood that have already been out there. You know, there's all the way back to the Douglas Fairbanks film, which is so much fun to watch. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's um, there was a Douglas Fairbanks, and there was one before it that was silent. It was hilarious because you know those old, those old silent movies. They're kind of they're a little faster, so everybody looks like they're running everywhere they go. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and it was the in the time before they had CGI, so the crowds had to be literally thousands of people. So you've got thousands of people running around, and and it's just mayhem and chaos and these huge enormous sets that you know they had to build instead of yeah, you know, contrive on the computer. So. We try to keep it in the spirit of all the Robin Hoods that have come before, and I think that's important too. You don't want to you don't want to lose the spirit of the original story. Yeah, um, and when you were talking about that, I was just thinking about the creative process, whether it is you're writing a novel or a play or a song or, or anything like that. That a lot of people think that the first step is brainstorming, but I don't think it is. I think it's limiting yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, like, when you were listening that through, you said, okay, we landed on this story, Robin Hood. Well, um, should we do it contemporary or, or not? Okay, we're, we're not going to. And then you said, you're, we're going to do a day in the life of Robin Hood. And every mm -hmm. one of those limits actually mm -hmm. sets you free. Um, once yeah. you made the choice to do one day and to, you know, cover those characters, it's like suddenly then you're free to really develop uh, the story within that. And... Um, I thought about writing a story one time from the perspective of a box who's like, everyone's always trying to say, get out of the box, right out of the box. He's like, I'm feeling <laughs> left out because I'm really important after all, you know? And, and, that's a great um, idea. But, yeah, man, uh, that's a children's book right there. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's like once you limit, yourself you actually kind of, I, I kind of think of it as the paradox of creativity it's like mm -hmm. the more you limit yourself the more free you become and when you have complete freedom you actually don't end up telling a story at all like if you say, like sometimes in my writing class I'll say go ahead and write a story and I'll just wait five minutes and say how many of you guys have a story and they're like no I couldn't think of anything right so then I'll say <laughs> okay in the next five minutes write a story about a pickle that doesn't want to get eaten 
Mm-hmm. And everybody has a story right at the end, and uh, some yeah. are tragic and some are humorous. But but I said, now what's the difference? At first, you couldn't come up with a story, and then after I set those limitations, suddenly everybody in here had had a story. I, I said, like the the secret is not that you can't think of anything; it's that you are so full of ideas that it's uh, basically it paralyzes you. You don't even know where to start. So. Yeah. Starting with those limitations really is a way to free yourself to to tell those unique stories. Yeah, absolutely. I remember a writing class I had in New York um, one time. They early, Very early in the class, they did similar things to kind of get the creative juices flowing. And one of my favorite things that we did in that class is he would uh, our teacher would come in every day and assign us a, a, a movie. And he would say, I want you to pick one scene from this movie and write it as if it were a musical. And so one day he brought in Working Girl. You remember the Harrison Ford, Melanie oh, Griffith yeah. movie from yeah. the 80s? He said, I want you to pick one scene from just one scene. That's all. You know, you don't don't think about the whole story. Just pick one scene, write a song as if it was a musical. And, yeah, it, it was very freeing because it's like, okay, now I know what my assignment is. I know, I know who's in the scene. I know what I have to accomplish. The story's already written. It's not like I'm rewriting the movie. I just have to write it as if you're going to sing it instead of act it out. And so yeah. that's great. Yeah. I love yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that um, yeah, that first step is it seems paradoxical, but you limit, and then you brainstorm. And uh, mm-hmm. you can move forward and make those creative connections between you know the story. And For example, I've seen the show that you uh, and uh, your father wrote uh, based on Esther. I think yeah. Was it the Star Queen or the Beauty Queen? Uh-huh. Yeah, Star Queen. That's right. Yeah, Star Queen, and um, and so it was neat because you took this classic story, and you know, within the framework of that story, you were able to you know, in, weave in song and story, and and kind of do mm-hmm. a two-person show. It was it's neat. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um. So uh, this kind of is related to it. I was just thinking of when you're working on a new song. Um, what typically comes first to you? Maybe the images, the story, the tune, um, or or does it just vary with with the different projects you're working on? Uh, it, it, there's a wide variety because I, I collaborate quite a bit. I've got five or six people I collaborate with, including my father. And sometimes one of my collaborators will send me a lyric. Uh, sometimes I'll get a melody from somebody. Um, so I work from both ends. Sometimes I'll start with a melody, send it off, or I'll start with a lyric and then try to put a melody to it later. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes a poem, like your poems. I'm, I'm working on a few of your poems right now. I'm trying to set yeah, in the music. We'll see if and, something <laughs> something comes yeah. out in the future. Yeah, your song, your your poems are so lyrical. They just naturally. I remember the first time I started reading your poems, I was like, these these really sing. They they would work well in a you know, set to melody. So um, I work from a lot of different angles. Some people, I think people who don't write songs think, well, it's got to be lyrics. People write the lyrics first, then they write the music, then they record it. And it's not always in that order. It's it's kind of a it's kind of a mix for me. I don't really I don't really do it one way or the other. It's whatever the situation calls for. Now, one so, of the one of the songs I was telling you about earlier before we were um, on the air is the, the song Shadows that you wrote. And um, mm-hmm. I think on the uh, on that on the album, it was the New York album, 
Um, that's probably mm-hmm. one of my favorite songs. And no, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I was going to see if maybe you um, you could tell us a little bit about the story or the seed, and then if you if you don't mind, just go ahead and sing uh, sing the song, a, a shadow song. Yeah. I think it it'd be great because you know a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with your work, and uh, it's just a great kind of a moment uh, story that uh, that I think is really poignant. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I got the idea for this one one day at the Metropolitan Museum of Art there in the Central Park, uh, which can be kind of an overwhelming place if you don't have a mission going there. It's uh, I used to when I lived there, I would pick one thing that I wanted to see. I would say, okay, today I want to see some Hopper, and I would just go to the Hopper paintings, and and then I would leave because after a while, uh, one ancient Greek sculpture starts looking like every other ancient Greek sculpture. <laughs> I always, you were talking about limits. I always tried to limit myself. But one day I was in there looking at, um, there's a there's a hallway that has several sculptures by Rodin, who did The Thinker. And um, in, the, in the next room was a Mondrian. And I thought, well, Mondrian rhymes with Rodin. That's kind of cool. And... <laughs> And there was a, a guidebook sitting on one of the benches there in front of the, the front of the Mondrian, and uh, I thought, oh, that's good. Uh, there could be a song here. And so I just thought about a guy who maybe was a sketch artist who was in the museum one day making some sketches, and maybe it was a place where he and his lover or his wife or his girlfriend used to come, and and now they're separated, and so he. He's trying to get back with her. In my mind, this is what was happening. Um, you can interpret the song several ways, but in my mind, he's thinking about her. And he writes a little note in the sketchbook and leaves it there because he thinks maybe she'll come back here. And uh, in my version of the story, somebody else comes across that sketchbook and opens it up and finds the note, and it reminds him of um, a relationship he had, which was very similar. So it's kind of where the song started and i'll sing it for you all right excellent yeah i hope you can hear me (laughs) okay (laughs) this is called shadows in the west wing of a gallery near a sculpture bible on a bench i found a sketchbook underneath the mondrian it was open to a page that showed a landscape in Japan And the words I hope you find this Marianne On page 10 a charcoal study of a holiday in Spain on page 12, a sketch in pencil of a quiet parish lane. In an ink grand central station with a figure by a train. With a profile drawn in sorrow etched in pain. Shadows of the moment. When their love was an adventure Over time their travels started Pulling them apart In the pages of a sketchbook 
to dimension destination, dusky shadows from the hollows of an empty lonely heart. From the smoky mountain cabin to an Amsterdam hotel, when he drew those bits of heaven, did he know he'd go through hell? As I browse that book of shadows there, those shadows cast a spell. In the west wing of the gallery I fell. Into shadows of the moment when our love was an adventure. Over time my travel started pulling us apart. In the pages of that sketchbook, two-dimension destination, dusky shadows like the hollows of my empty, lonely heart. Yay! I'm clapping here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Listen, my What's up? The sound of one hand clapping. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, when you were going through Hassan, I was just thinking about some of the the principles, you know, that you you'd mentioned earlier, uh, relating to creating and writing and storytelling and story through song, and and one was this this idea of, um, well, there's there's several things. One is this idea of an image, like for you it was shadows, Um, Mm -hmm. and the shadows ended up carrying more meaning uh, than just the, you, you know, it was like um, kind of thematic in a, in a sense, but but um, but just seeing that book gave you that idea, that image, and it ended up building up. And the second thing I was thinking of is conflict, um, that every good story ends up with some sort of tension or pursuit or this maybe a poignant emotional moment where things don't go right. And, you know, in that... Um, and that story, it's kind of like the sketchbook is sitting there, right? And someone yeah. didn't find it. And so there's there's always a story when there is um, the loss of something or the pursuit mm-hmm. of something. I think those lie at the heart of, you know, any great story. And, and then I liked also the personal connection kind of um, at the end where I think Robert Frost once said that a poem is never about what it is about. And, um, and I was thinking of uh, of that relating to your song that it's not just a song about that sketchbook, but it's also a song about a life, about the person's life who came across the sketchbook. And yeah, so it, it seems like it's about you know a sketchbook, but it's really much much deeper and much greater. And I think all those principles really apply, you know, whether you're writing a song or uh, you're writing a novel or play or spinning a mm-hmm. story in front of an audience. Yeah, it's kind of like Hitchcock's MacGuffin. Um, you remember that from the yeah. from Psycho? Um, it wasn't really about the money that Janet Lee stole, even though that was the primary focus of the, the whole first, what, 15 minutes of the movie. It, you think it's going to be this plot about this woman who gets away with stealing money, but the money ends up in the trunk with her at the bottom of the swamp, you know? And um, that was just a device for Hitchcock to tell the rest of the story. That stack of money really 
when the movie's over, you don't remember, you don't barely remember the stack of money at the beginning of the movie, but it seemed to have so much importance at the beginning. So I guess the sketchbook yeah, yeah. in the song is the MacGuffin that leads to <laughs> what the shadows really are. Yeah, and so. I was, you know, with Psycho, he broke so many conventions typically of, you know, oh, stories yeah. like you should, you know, start with your protagonist or you should. You know, like the protagonist is killed like halfway into the movie. Like yes. the protagonist <laughs> is now dead. So, yeah, what? who's who's the story about? And um, and I like I like that image of Psycho because it kind of gets us away from the templates and the structure that everyone's like, oh, you know, a story has to have this movement or this act and this act and this act and yeah, and that story really. Um, I don't even know. I guess you would say it's maybe five acts or two acts or something, but it's like protagonist is gone, and that whole storyline that you mentioned with the money and so on is relegated to the background. It's it's not about that at all. And yeah. I think that people accept that because of the name of the um, of the movie, Psycho. It sets mm-hmm. our expectations in a certain direction, where if it would have been called heist or something, it wouldn't have had this. We would have felt sort of betrayed. Like what? I thought it was a heist movie. I thought it was about this uh, money and everything. And suddenly it's completely mm-hmm. different. But by giving the movie the name Psycho, when that happens, I think um, the audience is like, oh, okay, now I see what the title's about, right? And they yeah. make that connection and then they move forward. So. I think that the the titles of our stories or songs or whatever actually become part of the story itself because they set expectations mm-hmm. to um to the audience. Um so, yeah. you know the title of a book uh, does the same thing or a, a, of a album or a song and and mm-hmm. uh, that actually plays in in an integral way to the uh to the story that's being told. Yes, absolutely. And Hitchcock did so many, like you were talking about, so many other things that were unconventional with that film. I mean, they already had color film when that one came out. So it was kind of shocking that he was doing another black and white. Hmm. Uh, it was shocking. It was the first movie to ever show a toilet on screen. Did you know that? No, a toilet. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Up to that point, it was against the regulations of the film board to show a toilet on screen. So when he went, when he took the dailies to the censors, they said, you can't show that toilet. And he said, well, it's important to the plot because she writes down some figures on a piece of paper and flushes them ah. so that nobody will be able to find them. But he intentionally put that commode in there to make the audience uneasy because he knew that it would have been the first time that film audiences would have seen a, a, a toilet on the screen. Huh. And so that was an intentional thing for them to to feel even more uneasy. So. That was interesting too. That is interesting. Yeah, um, yeah c- creating that sense of of unease. And um, as a songwriter, I don't know if you f- are familiar. Who who was the um, person who did his music? Do you remember who that was? Yeah, Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, yeah he's and, one of my favorite composers of all time. Brilliant yeah. guy. But uh, again, it's like this interweaving of the music to um, support the story. And mm-hmm. I think with Psycho, I mean, we all kind of hear this iconic. Oh yeah, whatever. yeah. Um, and I, I don't know the whole story, but I think that was probably the first time that that instrument had been used in that way. I don't remember the whole story, but 
But yeah, uh, that's a whole string orchestra. There's no no other instruments. It's just strings. The whole movie. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, and without uh, if you watch that scene without the music, it's very it's it's not as strong either. The music really punches up the drama there for sure. <laughs> now. Um, for you, you went to a museum and you saw this little book, and one by one, these moments came to you. These questions came to you. What if this, and then this person, and it was so natural for you to construct a story out of a moment, to mm-hmm. see the conflict, to see the imagery, to see the emotion and the resonance. And for for all of us um, who who might be listening, um, writers, artists, whoever it is, how can we open our eyes to these stories around us. I think one of the first things you said when you got on was like, you know, we don't even look for stories. They're everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But how do we foster that ability to pluck ideas from our lives and weave them into the art that we're working on? Um, I think uh, it was Woody Allen that said 90% of success is just showing up. Um I think baby steps are a great place to start for everybody. And a lot of times I feel like I'm still taking baby steps. Uh, some days it's it's hard for me to even get, you know, one line written or uh, or five measures of music together. It's just some days it can be very baby step and very plotting. And I think if you can just embrace that and realize that a lot of this process might have to be baby steps until, you know, I just get to the point where it's like falling off a log. But I think even the greats, when you when you talk to the songwriters, and they all, I don't think any of them will tell you that it's ever easy. But I do think things can help you, like um, getting your toolkit together. I, I use several tools. I use a thesaurus. I'm not ashamed to say I use a thesaurus. I use a rhyming <laughs> dictionary. I use a slang dictionary. I use a, a Bartlett's quotations book. I'm the most derivative songwriter on the planet because. <laughs> Everything I write is probably inspired by something else. In fact, if I'm writing a song, usually I will go back and listen to a song that I like that someone else has written, and I think I want a song. I want to write a song that sounds like that. So very often I'll be I'll just pull from other sources and try to mold them and make them my own. Um, so baby steps are great. A lot of times I'll take a rhyming dictionary down, and if I'm stuck on a line. I'll just list all the words that rhyme with the word at the end of the line, and I'll read through that list, and there'll be a word that will jump off of that list, and I'll say, oh, well, that's a direction that I never thought of before. And with the Shadow song that happened, um, just I was looking for, you know, the first thing that inspired me was the, the realization that Rodan and Mondrian lined and I, rhymed, and I thought, has anybody ever rhymed Mondrian and Rodan in a song? <laughs> and I don't think so, you know. And then Japan. And then Marianne, you know, there's there's one, two, three, four rhymes in that first verse. Yeah. And uh, so those rhymes were what led me to the story. I mean, how did I pick the girl's name? It rhymed with Rodan. How did I pick which country the landscape was going to be drawn in? It was Japan and because it rhymes with Rodan and Mondrian and Marianne. So <laughs> those little details, I think the God is in the details, and uh, they really make your stories pop. When those specifics, when you really get down to specifics, that's why I think Tom Waits is such a great songwriter. When you listen to his lyrics, they're so specific. He'll talk about, "I wish I was in Lulu's kitchen," and you know, and all these names that he'll pull out. Um, 
out, out of nowhere and you just think, well, where does he come up with this? They're just very specific things. So, When I was um, interviewing um, Jerry Jenkins on this uh, show, he he's uh, um, an author who wrote the Left Behind series. But he's friends with Stephen yeah. King, and one of the things that Jerry mentioned just about Stephen King's work, he said, it, it's these details. It's extraordinary. He'll remember, you know, what it was like to be eight years old, and he'll write a scene, uh, you know, mm-hmm. from the perspective of an eight-year-old, and every detail is is right. And um, I think that details are kind of a promise of significance. As, as far as writing novels, at least, we end up drawing attention to things through magnitude and specificity. So if you bring out a specific detail about someone, then immediately they become memorable and interesting, and we want to know more and hear more. And if they don't end up being significant, then readers are like, well, how can we tell this all that, you know, about the guys? Yeah, yeah. Whatever, hair or something like that. Um, and I was working on this book recently, and I realized that there's, like, if you mention someone's scar or tattoo, immediately readers will want to know more because they know there's a story behind that. Yeah. Um, so you can't sort of have a throwaway reference to a guy's big curling scar around his eye because every reader's like, well, how did he get it? And yeah. then suddenly you're like, you never mention it. They'll be disappointed. Um, yeah. So, you know, all of those are promises uh, that we make, narrative promises through, um, you know, the stories, the songs, whatever it might be. And one Yeah, of the it's like, that, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go on, go on. No, I was just thinking, um, it reminded me of the third season of Breaking Bad. Uh, in the opening shot, uh, Vince Gilligan shows this eyeball floating in a pool, swimming pool. And then the rest of the story goes on, and the whole show, you, they never come back to that. And you're like, well, what in the world? Why was there an eyeball floating in the pool at the beginning? But then the say, episode two starts, and you see that eyeball, and then the camera backs off a little bit, and there's a teddy bear floating and oh, right, start, right. Oh, oh, the eyeball came from the teddy bear. Well, then you don't hear anything else. But each episode, they back up from the story a little more. And, you know, then they back up and they show Walt's swimming pool, and it's full of all this debris, including the teddy bear. And you're like, well, how did the debris get there? So they took the whole season to back up, and I won't give away the ending of the season, but it was one of the most masterfully crafted reveals, I thought, in TV history. It was just they gave you these tiny little things and expanded on them every episode until you got the full picture at the very end, and it just packed a huge punch. Yeah, I think storytelling on uh, television today, it, it has the opportunity to do that, these magnificent kind of long reveals just like that. I remember that episode and that season, and um, there's a, um, an Emmy-winning um, screenwriter that I had on here, John Tinker, and he called it, he calls it backfilling. Like when mm-hmm. you show something to readers, it's like this promise. And then five episodes, ten episodes later, you might go back and reference it. And readers, he calls it backfilling where they'll go back, not readers in, in that case, but audience or listeners, watchers, whatever. They'll uh-huh. go back and like fill in um, and say, oh, okay, that's what that you know referred to. Um, but let's say that Vince had never shown anything more. He made this promise with the eyeball, and then they just dropped yeah. it for the rest of the season. We would have been like, yeah. what was the eyeball about, right? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, so much of it is is promises and and how we pay them off. And, 
yeah. and uh, and shape the stories. Now, one of the things that I've always really respect about you is kind of your heart of compassion for people, both impacting um, you know those who don't have as much and and also those around the world. Um, and so, uh, tell me, t- tell us a little bit about this program with the the music under the bridge there in in Knoxville. Okay. Um, about five years ago, a friend of mine introduced me to a lady here in Knoxville named Maxine Rains, who runs an organization called Lost Sheep Ministry. It's basically a ministry to down-and-out uh, homeless, people who are struggling with addictions, prostitutes, uh, people on the low-income end of things. Um, so he told me about a Friday night hot dog ministry that they did to the nightclubs where they would try to stop kids coming out of the bars and give them some food to sober them up a little bit and hopefully share Christ with them. And so I started going to that, and the more I started hanging around Maxine, the more I got interested in her ministry. She's been doing this for 25 years, and every Wednesday night under the huge overpass that goes into downtown Knoxville, they serve a sit-down meal to between 250 to 400 homeless people. And when I first started going, I was just signing people in and getting food for people who were had different physical disabilities and things. Um, but they also give out food. They give out food. They give out clothing. They do dental. They bring a dental truck down. They have a veterinarian that comes for people's pets. They have hairdressers. Uh, there's a guy who does barbecue twice a month. owns a big barbecue business here in town. Um, so it's it's all these ministries that happen. It happens every week, and um, they had a singer for a while. And I came down there one night, and they didn't have anybody singing. And so I asked Maxine. I said, "Well, who's what happened to the singer?" And and she said, "Well, she had to move to Nashville, so we don't have anybody to sing anymore." And then she looked at me and she said, "Hey, wait a minute, you sing, don't you?" And I said, "Yeah." <laughs> and she said, "She said there's a keyboard up there. Go up there and start playing." And so. So for the past probably two and a half years, I've been playing every Wednesday night and singing. And um, I usually end up just doing requests all night. It's like That's a steady stream of people just requesting songs. And so it gives me a great forum to sing and to talk to people. And uh, uh, it's, it's a great ministry. I've, I would love to invite anybody who's interested in that sort of ministry to come down and help out one Wednesday night because you'll fall in love with with the program. It's great. I just think that's inspiring that, you know, every Wednesday night there you are, year after year and and she's there helping out helping out the people who, you know, don't have as much and you're yeah. also on your website you also mentioned a connection with Compassion International and I also um am com- connected to them in a in a way that we've sponsored children through Compassion International for about 22 years, I think. That's awesome. Really exactly. ever since my wife and I got married. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, tell, tell us a second uh, for, for a minute or so about uh, compassion or your interest in what they're what they're doing. My um, my family's been sponsoring kids since I was a little. I don't remember what year we started sponsoring them through compassion, but the reason we love compassion is because of their mission statement, which says to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. There's a lot of relief organizations out there that are doing a lot of good, but they don't all do it in Jesus' name and, you know, broadcast it like Compassion does. And we really love that because ultimately we think everyone's primary need is to meet Jesus. 
um, along with you know helping out with their physical needs. Um, so we started promoting compassion at our events. We'd travel on the weekends, and everywhere we would go, we would hand out brochures. And at some point, I called Compassion and asked them to send me another box of brochures, and they said, you know what, you, you've been giving out so many brochures, can we just send you kids? Because it would save a step. <laughs> and I said, yeah, absolutely. So they started sending us a, pack, a stack of brochures that are actual kids who are waiting to be sponsored. And so now we go out every weekend and we encourage people to sponsor kids right there. And we've been able to find sponsors for over 500 kids now. Oh, wow. Uh, over the past, I think we started started handing out actual photos of children in 2013, I think. So for about three years now, we've been actively finding sponsors for kids. I just love the way they work because they go into the poorest areas of of these third world countries, and they build a center um, where kids can come and have a safe place to play, get tutored for their classes, get hot meals and medical care, clothing if they need it. And at the same time, they try to connect them to a sponsor somewhere in the world who, for a little more than a dollar a day, can provide all those things for that child. Um, so I just love the way they work. I don't know if you have you ever been on a trip to visit one of the centers. We visited um, the one of the boys that we sponsor. Uh, one oh, that's time, great! A number of years yeah. ago now in Guatemala. But, uh, awesome. Yeah, no, I really believe in in what they do. And like when you were I talking see. about that, I just was thinking of you know you're a guy with great with strong faith. Um, you really care about people and you want what's best for them. And your songs that you do aren't necessarily spiritual in any way. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, some people, whenever they're going to do an art, let's say it's writing or songwriting or whatever, um, maybe they feel like, oh, I've got to make this religious or spiritual. Or maybe they feel I shouldn't do that because it might turn certain people off. But, Mm -hmm. But for you, it just feels like this is a great story that needs to be told about the shadows or... Um, about any of these moments from all of the different songs you've written. Um, and it doesn't seem like you're trying to do it just to get a certain view across, but just because that's an important story to be told. I like that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting, yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I just, I don't, I, I tend to agree with C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said there's no such thing as Christian music. Yeah. Um, a Christian is a, a, a term that's used for a human being who's, a little Christ or, or a follower of Christ. And so to put a label like Christian on music or art or anything like that, it's almost false. And um, so, you know, I think if you part, I think what, what we forget sometimes is that as artists, we're, we can, there's nothing wrong with entertaining. And right. one of the most entertaining things you can do is tell a story. Yeah. And uh, Dad and I talk about that all the time. We just we love to see people entertained, and I think a lot of people forget that. They're so concerned with getting a, an issue covered or getting an agenda across, or uh, that that they forget that it's that there's entertainment involved, and there's just the skill of telling a good story that can glorify God just as much as trying to get some sort of message across. Yeah, and I think so. no matter what the message ends up being, a lot of times it can make the art form. It can actually hamper it, you know. It's like yeah. um, Dorothy Sayers was a um, she used to write detective stories, and she said something like, "Anytime that you try and write um, a story and make it a sermon, you'll end up with something that's not a very good sermon and not a very good story." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. But that's uh, right. 
but yeah, I think um, I think that's a you know a really good point. Whatever the agenda might be, whether it's a Christian agenda or a Buddhist agenda or an atheist agenda, as soon as we sort of see the agenda, we're reading a book. Oh, I get it. You're an atheist. Religion is bad. Yeah. Well, eventually. Yeah. You know, if that's the message that's being beat across the head of the reader, they're going to be like, okay, I get it. I just want a story. And it's the same, yeah. you know, with a spiritual lesson, I think. So that's a, that's interesting. It's a good good insight. So Yeah, I remember in my in my writing class in New York one time, I, I did a song, and a guy raised his hand after I did the song, and he goes, you know, I came here to hear your song today, not a sermon. Hmm. And, uh, and then he went on to say, you know, you could stand up there and tell me all day long that Nazis are evil and just preach it at me. Or you could make me sit down and watch Schindler's List. And he said, I'll sit down and watch that whole movie. And he said, at the end of the movie, I'm going to know that Nazis are evil. So, you know, that the story is what conveys that message, whether you blatantly say it out loud or not. So, that's good. That's, that's yeah. good. Um, yeah, entertainment. I was telling stories to children one time. I like to do children's programs, even though I write serial killer novels. Yeah. <laughs> but um, And I was doing this show for kids and just seeing them laugh. I thought, you know what? That's a gift to help someone laugh in our world. There's yeah. a lot of things to cry about. There's a lot of things to be heavy-hearted about, about, about in our world and to mm-hmm. give people that gift to be able to smile or laugh. Um well, however your your story might do that, whether it's a song or a novel or just a performance, I think I think that's something to be valued, really. Yeah, I think too. Well, this is great. I've really enjoyed and talking and uh, just kind of exploring all of these interesting issues related to story and also the creative process, keeping our eyes out and uh, taking note of the images, the the resonance, the emotion, the conflict around us and. And then being responsive, I think one of the things that you really mentioned was, you know, as you work on a, st- uh, a song, you, you respond. Like, you think of an idea, and then, oh, that idea might put me in a new direction, and being responsive mm-hmm. in the stories stories that we tell. So this is a great conversation. So, JT, where can people connect with you online? Oh, you can go to my name, which is johnthomasoaks.com. Um, I have a website that has a few, uh, like, videos and songs and links to other things, so... Is and that you can the also email me to, from there. Uh, is that the best place to check out your music or through yeah. iTunes yeah. or anything? Yeah, you can go to iTunes too. I've got my stuff on there and Spotify and Pandora. I have a Pandora station and um, just sent some music off to satellite radio this week, so I'm hoping I'll get in rotation there too pretty soon. Excellent. But yeah, I think if you just Google my name, you'll find me on iTunes and CD Baby and Pandora and different places. So. Um, but yeah, my website has a few links as well, and you can contact me from there. I'm, I answer my emails uh, pretty pretty faithfully, I hope. <laughs> well, that's, that's great. So, so we look for Google John Thomas Oaks, and um, you will find info about JT's songs and music, and be sure to um, put them on your playlists, um, Pandora and Spotify. And, so, folks, for info about the writing novel writing intensive retreats that I lead uh, around the country, go to novelwritingintensive.com. We'll be in Tennessee coming up in the spring. Registrations are open now. We only take 14 people, uh, and so four have signed up, and a few slots are available. For more info about other guests and to check out our other broadcasts, click to thestoryblender.com. And always remember... 
the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.